Hey, good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's so great to see everyone this morning. My name's Steve, if we haven't met before. I'm one of the elders here at ICON. Uh, please, please remain standing with me as we're going to read God's word uh, together. Uh, I'm going to be reading from John 14, 1 to 6 today, and uh, if you have your Bibles, or if you don't have one, there's, uh, there should be a blue Bible close by in the pews, and to make it really easy, shortcut to page 525. Uh, so if you uh, don't have one, uh, grab one. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll give folks a sec to flip over to 525. All right, the reading of God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, we'll have the privilege and honor of introducing uh, our speaker today, Nathan Betts. Uh, Nathan is actually a writer and a speaker here based in the Seattle area, just to the south of us in Bonnie Lake. And uh, Nathan actually grew up in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, and attended uh, Tyndale University College. Uh, after graduation, he had a stint working for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, and you'll have to ask him where his loyalties lie now. Uh, I don't know. Um, but... Uh, uh, the combination of his training at Tyndale uh, and the work at the uh, Blue Jays organization focused his passion on sharing the good news with, of Jesus Christ with others. He then went on to study at King's College uh, in the University of London, and that launched him into a, uh, a career that has led him all across the globe, presenting the message of Jesus Christ to people um, answering the big questions of life. Nathan is a multi-talented leader, uh, having preached uh, at his local church, writing op-ed pieces for the Seattle Times and Christianity Today, as well as consulting in Washington for churches and schools. And most recently, he's created a seminar uh, series entitled Something Meaningful, Something Beautiful, to answer the leading questions of, uh, from a Christian perspective. Nathan and I recently reconnected uh, through a personal friend. Uh, some of you may remember uh, an impactful video sermon from Sunder Christian in, in January. Uh, Sundar will be rejoining us here in a couple weeks. Uh, and Nathan and Sundar are actually close family. And so uh, not too long ago, Sundar put us back in touch. Uh, and I say reconnect uh, because in a funny coincidence, I happen to remember uh, sitting together with Nathan at a charity dinner uh, in Toronto 25 years ago. Uh, and somebody at the table uh, asked the, the younger Nathan Betts what type of uh, career he was interested in, and Nathan's answer wasn't anything close to what I would have expected to hear. His, his uh, quick response was, itinerant evangelist. 
Uh, and I thought, wow, uh, for someone uh, to know that early uh, that they wanted to enter such a unique uh, and meaningful career has always stuck with me. Uh, so please welcome uh, Nathan uh, to, this, uh, to the stage this morning. Um, Hey, thank you very much. That was such a generous introduction. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. A uh, real treat. Um, to every speaker, there is a biography. Uh, and speaking more personally, as uh, Steve mentioned, you know, I'm, from, I'm from Canada, but now I'm, I'm dual. As of last, last summer, so t- summer of 2022, I became an American citizen, so now I carry both. I still, of course, when, I, when people ask me about my background, I, I tell them, uh, I still, if you prick my skin, I still bleed maple syrup. So I still have that Canadian background. I, you know, who doesn't like maple syrup, really? I mean, I mean you, know, you know, check your heart uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't. But uh, uh, I want to speak to you this morning on what I've called four words that capture the uniqueness of Jesus. Four words that capture the uniqueness of Jesus. And before I get into that, let me just give you just a bit more background as to maybe how I got to this point of, of speaking on the uniqueness of Jesus, of, of, of really spending the lion's share of my professional vocational time, my professional career telling people uh, about the beauty and attractiveness of Jesus. How did, how did that happen? Well, I would almost go back to ground zero in my teenage years, in my high school years, when I started asking what philosophers call the ultimate questions. Now, that's a very uh, a grand, sophisticated way of, of speaking into uh, some of the deep, heartfelt questions we all ask. Uh, questions like, where will I find meaning? What, what will satisfy me? Where do I find value? Those kind of questions. And I started asking those questions, of course, back then, uh, the, the nuancing, the wording was not in that sophisticated manner, but I was asking those big questions. I was searching, and I remember at that same time, Although I had grown up in the church, I knew how to look the part at a church service. You know, my mom and dad would take us, uh, me and my three sisters, they, my mom and dad would take us to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Uh, something happened at church during the midweek. I forget what it was, but we were there in, in the middle of the week. And then at the end of the week, it was something else. But on a particular Friday, I'll never forget, a friend of mine from another church invited me to his youth group. And uh, I, I went to this youth group, and by all descriptions, uh, it was the same as any other youth group I had been to. You know, you play some games, uh, you uh, have some food, and then you sing some songs, and you hear someone give a short talk. Except on this particular evening, I'll never forget, while everyone was singing songs, I remember looking across this sort of packed chapel in this church building of students, uh, some of whom were peers from my high school, and they were singing, but all of a sudden it dawned on me that they were actually singing as if God was there. And I, I knew what church looked like. I, I had sung songs before, but I, I, I realized that actually they were singing to God, and I had never done that before. I, I sang songs about God, but they were singing to him, and I realized there's a vast difference between singing to God and singing about God. Singing to, to God has with it the idea of relationship. You're interacting, you're engaging with him. And if I were to sum up that moment, uh, I would use the word encounter. 
I encountered God. And what I mean by that is I was struck with the reality of God. That all of a sudden it was like, wow, this, this thing is real. This is alive. God is real. So to this point in my life, if I were to not follow Jesus, if I were to not be a Christian, I could tell you I don't like it uh, or I don't want it to be true, but there's no way I could actually tell you that the thing is not true because in that moment I was confronted with the reality of God. It was real. And that has taken me, uh, I mean, really it was weeks after that when I eventually gave my life to Jesus. I committed to following him. And as was mentioned by Steve, I, I have spent the last 15 years around there um, telling people about the beauty of Jesus in different settings around the globe. And so we come back to this topic of the uniqueness of Jesus. Now, I, um, before we get into that, actually, let, let's pray. Father, in these next few moments, we come, this morning we come from different places. For some of us, uh, some distractions. For others, it, there's, there's heaviness, there's, there's anxiety, there are concerns that we have. And um, well, we come from different places. And we ask that in these next few moments, you would help us to hear your voice. Come, Jesus, speak to us, speak to our hearts, Speak to our minds in your name. Amen. Let me begin with a, a story that will just sort of provide the on-ramp to what I prepared to share with you. There's a story told of a group of guys, and this story took place here in America, and it was in the, uh, around the 1930s. A group of young guys got onto a bus and when they got onto this bus, they saw another man at the back, sitting near the end, sitting near the back of this bus. And they started to pick on this guy. And they hurled verbal assaults. No response by the guy at the back of the bus. And so they ramped up. There was a crescendo to their voices. They got louder and louder, and they, they became more aggressive. No response by the guy at the back of the bus. So they got up and moved closer to this guy at the back of the bus, and they also got louder, more belligerent, hurling these verbal assaults. They were effectively bullying this guy at the back of the bus. And this man still never responded. Then the bus stopped, and it was this guy's turn. This was, it, this was his bus stop. So the man at the back of the bus got up, and as soon as he got up, he was much bigger than these guys had anticipated. He stood up and he walked past them and as soon as he walked past them, he leaned down to the lead bully, the ringleader, and handed, them, handed him a business card. And then eventually stepped off the bus. The bus moved on and as soon as the bus drove on, all these guys huddled around their ringleader to see what was on that business card. What were the words on that business card? And on this business card, they, he turned it over and it read, Joe Lewis, professional boxer. <laughs> now, for those of you who do not know Joe Lewis, Joe, Joe Lewis was the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from between 1933 to 1949. So let me give you a translation. They picked the wrong guy. They picked a fight with the wrong guy. 
Now, I begin with this story because, in a way, conversations about Jesus are a bit like that, in that we, we look at Jesus, and if we do a panoramic view of Jesus and other founders of faiths, he, like all others, looks very, he looks appealing. He's compelling. But in a way, not that different to other compelling figures throughout history. But the closer you get, he seems to tower over other figures. He seems a lot bigger than we actually thought he was. We discover effectively that Jesus is unique. He's different. He's not like the others. I want to give you four words that capture the uniqueness of Jesus. Now, of course, there are, there are several words we could use. This, uh, when, you, when we talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, what makes Jesus different, uh, that's a whole course. That's a whole PhD for many. But I want to just uh, give you what I've, really, uh, over the last three to five years, I've done a little more thinking on what makes Jesus so unique. And the four words are history, truth, love, and wounds. History, truth, love, and wounds. Let me begin with history. You know, I remember a few years ago, I was speaking with a colleague, and uh, I, one of the persons who, uh, who came to the microphone to ask a question, this person came to the microphone and said, look, I want you to prove to me. He looked at my colleague and said, look, I want, to prove, I want you to prove to me that Jesus Christ exists. He actually was a real person, but don't use the Bible. I know what you, I mean, you Christians, you're predictable. You, know? you always use the Bible. You can't do anything without using the Bible. No, 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 not this time. I want you to prove to me that Jesus exists. Don't use the Bible. How's that one? I, that'll get the heartbeat going. And what's interesting is you could feel it. You could feel, you know, that, 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 that the sort of the oxygen leave the room. How, how, as Christians, how are we to respond to that? Now, what, uh, let me just share a, a quick thought. There are problems with that question. It, it's still an important question to ask and explore, but one of the problems with that question of, hey, prove to me that Jesus exists, but don't use the Bible, well, baked into that question is the assumption that the Bible is not credible, that the Bible isn't really trustworthy. And what's interesting about that is if you look into people, like scholars, people who eat, sleep, and breathe the history of antiquity, even if you go, like, you don't look into conservative scholars or even Christian scholars, but go on the skeptical end of things for historians of antiquity, the most antagonistic people still would say, look, if you want to know about Jesus, you want to look at the Gospels. Look to the biographies of Jesus. Look to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because those are the credible sources if we want to understand Jesus Christ. So it's not as though this is a Christian thing as much as this is a scholarship thing saying the Bible is credible. But actually, let's take that question at face value for a second and look at the history piece of this and take that question at face value and say, okay, we're not going to use the Bible to show that Jesus exists. And what's really encouraging there is we actually have a lot of data outside the Bible that shows Jesus as true history, real person, first century Palestine. And as I've I've given thought to this, it's gonna be a bit technical here, but let me give you just a few thoughts on this that root Jesus in history, but from people outside of the scriptures. 
For instance, the Roman historian named Cornelius Tacitus, first century historian, refers to Jesus' execution under Pontius Pilate and describes the movement surrounding him as a, quote, pernicious superstition. A Roman administrator, again, this is, these are all first century people, a Roman administrator named Pliny the Younger mentions the early Christian worship of Jesus, quote, as a god. The Roman historian Suetonius, writing around AD 120, refers to the disturbances among Roman Jews, of which there were thousands, over the claim that Jesus was, quote, the Christ. In other words, the Jewish Messiah. First century Jewish historian Josephus recounts Jesus' fame as a teacher, miracle worker, and martyr. Now why is all this important? Because I think if, if you're anything like me, eventually when I was going through those quotes there, you might be thinking, man, this is, we're, we're getting in the weeds here. You know, why, are we, this, why are we getting into the weeds here? Why, we, why it's worth actually thinking about those people? First century historians mentioning Jesus as a real person? Well, the reason why that's so important is because we discover that actually the Bible is not a self-referencing book. That what we find, particularly and especially in the New Testament, the reports of Jesus Christ is actually telling us that actually Jesus is rooted in history. That means that actually when we look to the person of Christ or when we put our trust in Jesus, it's not as though we need to sort of just put our hands over our eyes and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm just gonna like white knuckle this. Yeah, no, it's true. Don't like just, don't show me that thing over there. No, Christianity is a eyes wide open. Eyes wide open faith. Well, let's just stop there for a moment. What makes up faith in Jesus. Like just think about that word, when you, when you, if you were to talk say to a friend, family member or colleague who's not a Christian and the word faith comes up, what do you think is going through their mind when they hear the word faith? And I remember talking to a leading journalist, this is years ago in, in Canada, and in Canada, this is, of course, this is my opinion as, you know, this is the Canadian part of me. In Canada, there are many journalists, but I don't know if there are many hip journalists. And I remember talking to one guy who actually, he was intelligent, but he was also hip. I was like, that's really interesting. And so here we are, downtown Toronto, and I remember being in his television studio, and I was, we had, a, this was a series of conversations that we had, so it's, it's not as though we were friends, I would say we're more acquaintances, but I, he, he and I had a series of conversations around faith. And there was one point at which I said, I finally said to him, look, you ha I know you have a Christian background, but why, why are you not a Christian? And it, it, listen closely here, because he said to me, look, you have faith, but you see, me, uh, I'm an analytical kind of guy. So I just, I could never do what, I could never enter into that space that you are in. Do you see what he's saying there? Let, let me sort of translate that. He's saying, look, you have faith, and that's a type of gift, maybe sort of gift of stupidity, maybe. Me, on the other hand, I, well, I wish I could have that, but I, I, I'm, I use my brain. I'm analytical. Do you see what's happening there? Now, of course, it's very polite, because, you know, Canadians were very polite. But it, it's sort of a backhanded jab at saying, you know, I actually, I want to think about this. 
and it seems like you've been able to turn that off at some point. No, Christianity, especially when we look to history, tells us actually, you know, if you want to see Jesus, actually look to history, and history will shed light. It would illuminate the wonder of Jesus. History and truth. What, what captures, what helps us understand the uniqueness of Jesus? History, and then we move to truth. A good friend of mine is a, uh, a guy named Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness is known as a social critic. He's a cultural observer. Uh, he's in his 70s now, but he has great one-liners. If you've read any of Oz Guinness's books, he has great one-liners, and one of his great one-liners is, contrast is the mother of clarity. Contrast is the mother of clarity. Now, what does that mean? It means that actually, insofar as this discussion is concerned, when we're looking to Jesus Christ and wanting to try to look to see what makes Jesus so unique, Oz says, look, just look at the different things that maybe are competing or look similar and contrast them. Contrast the the bullet points, the tenets of these beliefs, and eventually you'll see that there are differences and the differences make a difference. You see, when you look to all other faiths, for instance, compelling and beautiful as they are, all other faiths point to the truths by which wholeness can be attained. But what's interesting is their founders are not actually essential to the instructions. And just follow, follow me here for a moment. Take, for instance, and I say this with great care to my, my friends you know, who hold other beliefs. Say, for instance, in Islam, Muhammad, born in 570, died in 632 AD. Gautama Buddha died in 400 BCE. Here's the thing. These are the names of people who have inspired, they've challenged, they've shaped civilizations, but they themselves were not necessarily essential to the respective faiths. What do I mean there? I mean that actually Muhammad was not necessarily essential to the Islamic faith. In other words, there could have been another person who was the final prophet who took the words of Allah. There could have been another Buddha. But Jesus, Jesus Christ, this, this makes him unique because if you remove Jesus Christ from Christianity, you have no Christianity. There, there is no Christianity. Um, it's a bit of a cheesy joke, but a friend of mine says, if you take Christ out of Christian, all you're left with is Ian, and Ian cannot help you. <laughs> but you see, you can't, but, but, and this is saying with respect, with great respect to our friends of other faiths, it's not actually poo-pooing or sort of throwing mud. It's saying you can actually remove those people, the founders of those faiths, and still, because they weren't essential, you could have had another person who would have been able to take the, the holy and sacred Quran. There could have been another person who could have been the Buddha. Those people weren't crucial. What's crucial is the, the instructions, the, the, the books, the teachings, not so with Jesus. You take Jesus out and the whole thing breaks down. And what's interesting is as we, if we look back to the scripture that Steve read for us, when Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, isn't it interesting? He's not pointing to think something. 
he's actually saying there, like he does at, in different ways, and sometimes it's more implicit, and other times it's more explicit in his teachings. Here he's actually basically saying, look, I am the way. I'm the truth. He's not saying, look over here, follow this, do this thing over here, experience this. He's saying, no, I am the truth. And what's interesting is if you dig into that word, just to get a bit technical there, that word truth in the Greek uh, is the word aletheia, which means to unhide, to reveal. So what's really interesting is Jesus is saying, if you just work that out, Jesus is saying, I'm the way, I am unhiding. I am revealing. So the question is, what is, he, what is he unhiding? What is Jesus revealing? The answer is God. You, you might not necessarily get that just in that zoom in close up take, but if you look at the whole thing sort of horizontally, you put all the teachings together, it becomes obvious. Jesus is revealing to his friends, albeit in, a, in an enormously anxious moment where they've just seen Judas betray. They've just, been, they've just heard that Jesus is going to the cross. They are a very troubled group. That's why Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I know all of you right now, you are very troubled, says Jesus. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Remember, I'm the way. I'm revealing to you who God is. Don't forget that, don't let go of that. That's why he's saying it, because it is an extremely tense, anxious moment. And Jesus is saying, hold on to me. I'm the one who can get you through this. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I'm revealing to you who God is. Truth, according to Jesus, is not ultimately found in ideas, but in a person. Now just let's slow that down for a moment. Have you ever wondered why, given all of the different ways, like the bazillion ways in which God could have revealed himself, why did he choose Jesus? Why did he send, he could have done other things. He could have, like, like he had done earlier, he, he could have sent angels. He could have just done many other things. Why did he send Jesus? He could have just given new commands. One of the most popular verses in, in the popular mind in America is John 3.16, and it actually speaks to this question. Why did he do this? Because God so loves the world. It was his love. God loved us so much that he gave us his son. He gave. History, truth, and love. First John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. History, truth, and love. Years ago, I had the honor to spend just an evening with um, uh, Christian members of parliament in Ottawa, speaking and fielding questions that they had. And during the day, I had the day, most of the day open, and a friend of mine who, uh, I think he was an assistant to a member of parliament there in Ottawa, he said, hey, if you wanna come, why don't you come uh, to the House of Commons? I think you'll find it interesting just to be in the House of Commons and watch the questions time. And 
I'll tell you, for those of us, I put my hands up for this, who think Canadian politics is extremely boring, it might actually be compared to American politics. But I'll tell you what, if you go to the House of Commons and you watch the questions time, there's a different story. And so that particular day, I went with a couple of friends of mine, we went and we sat up in the, the galleries area, the, the balcony area, and we watched uh, members of parliament in the House of Commons in their question time. And it's really quite robust in some ways cantankerous, you know, people interrupting each other in mildly and, and sometimes not so mildly heckling each other. And to give you an idea of what happened, you have different parties uh, and representatives speaking up, and in some cases they're uh, addressing issues, they're responding to issues, different bills that are being passed. And so, for instance, one representative will get up and he'll say something, and his party will generally, his or her party, will respond by applause. And the opposition will either be quiet after that person has spoken, or they'll say, shame. While the, while the party, the, uh, the representative party will say, hooray, and then it just goes back like that. Shame, hooray, shame, and it's just like repeat, repeat the whole time. It honestly, is, it's, it, it, you can't make this up. I thought, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I'm seeing, and they're all like dressed up, everyone's in a suit. You know, everyone's dressed up really nice, except they don't, they don't sound as sophisticated as they look in this time. And this was interrupted. I'll never forget, this was back in 2018, and maybe you remember this story of a French police officer who did something remarkably heroic. But this one member of parliament stood up and said, I want to draw our attention to a French police officer who was called to the scene, and he was called to the scene of a hostage situation in a small village in France. And this was in March of 2018. And this member of parliament said, that person was not Canadian, but what that person did was incredibly heroic. They were called to the scene of this hostage situation at a supermarket. And there were different shoppers in there that were taken hostage, the, the owner and the, the clerks. And this policeman walked into the supermarket and he put his phone on speakerphone so that his fellow policemen, police officers outside could hear if there were gunshots fired. He put his phone down and what he did is he came into the supermarket and he exchanged places with another person. So the one person who was in there was able to leave when this police officer moved in. And by way of the speakerphone, these police officers outside that supermarket heard shots fired. And as soon as they heard shots fired, they stormed that supermarket. And they entered in the supermarket and they were able to get everyone out safely, except that police officer. Because of the bullets that had been fired that now riddled his body. And I'll never forget sitting there up in the balcony in the House of Commons and all of a sudden, there's quiet. And this member of parliament, speaking of this officer, police officer, who actually gave up his life so that others could live. He actually exchanged his life for other. And in so doing, was able to save everyone else 
in that supermarket. This member of parliament told the story and when he had finished, the whole room, irrespective of political difference, rose to their feet and you could feel the room shake with applause for this man who demonstrated such courage and sacrificial love for another human being. That is the kind of love that just gives us a, a picture, a picture into Jesus, God in flesh. We read earlier from Colossians, Paul gives this language of Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ embodies such love. He comes, he gives his life as a ransom. That's the language, he gives that, 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 that kind of cost, that kind of payment, a ransom for many, for all. Now what's interesting is when we think about that, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's massive, it's tr- we see, for many of us we might say it's true, it's beautiful, but there's still, oh, somehow it's disconnected from the deepest of our hearts. That, 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 does God love me? You see, it's much easier for me to say to you, hey, God loves you. God loves you. As opposed to hearing that for myself. I'm just speaking personally here. But this is where I find, uh, many of you will know, if maybe not all of you, a guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller was a great pastor in New York City. He died this, earlier this year, but he had a great line in one of his books. This is what he said, to be loved, but not known as comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Let Let me read that again. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. What is he saying? He's saying that there is a sense in which, a very real sense in which, we might be loved by people, but by people who don't really know us. And that, that's, there's, there's discomfort in that. That's, that, that's nice, but not that great because it's superficial. What's worse, what can be terrifying, is if the people who actually know us, they know us really well, they don't love us. That can be terrifying. But what if there's someone who knows us fully and loves us truly? Keller says that's actually, that is the love of God. That is the love of God. Do you know that this, this means, that means that there is never a time when we talk about God that we can say, if God only knew that, that, you know, fill in the blank. Because for many of us, that is, we have different parts of our life that we 
frankly, would rather not anyone know. Because if they did, they might not see us in the same way. They might not like us. They might not accept us. We would lose that sense of belonging, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But with Jesus, he knows. He knows us fully, and he loves us. He loves you. He knows you. History, truth, love, and wounds. You know, I came across a story recently, well, actually, this was years ago, of a, uh, a story told by a guy named John Dixon. John Dixon is an Australian ministry now. He's now at Wheaton uh, College in Illinois. One of his books, he tells a story of when he was speaking at a, a university in Australia. And uh, I think he was speaking on the topic of Christianity and maybe Jesus that evening. And in the Q&A, he talks of this particular Muslim student who came to the microphone and, and, and it, there was almost a sense of disgust in the tone of his voice and he said, how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat, sleep, and go to the toilet, let alone die on a cross. And if you, if you know of John Dixon at all, you know that here's a guy who's very intelligent. And he, yet he didn't have anything to say. He was trying to think of how to respond to that comment. And this is all he said. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds precious. God has wounds. You see, when we look at history, truth, love, why are all these points important? Well, history speaks to the question of, is it real? And our study of history reminds us that our belief in Jesus is based on reality. Truth speaks to the question of, who is he? And the more we look into Jesus, we find out who God is. Love speaks to the question of what is he like? What is God actually like? Does he, you know, and then when we look to this question, does he know my pain? Does he know, does he know me? Does he know my struggle? When we look to the jagged edges of our life, we want to know, does God actually know, does he really know? Does he know my struggle? Does he know my pain? And wounds, Christ's wounds, speak to that question. There's a poem called Jesus of the Scars by Edward Shalito, and this is part of that poem. Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. 
and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. God has wounds. You know, it's interesting, just as I land it here, as you move along in John's gospel, that passage we just read, perhaps one of the most poignant you know, of Jesus declaring into that moment uh, filled with anxiety and many questions when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. It's only a few, when you move along to John 20, when you have the passage post-resurrection. Jesus has appeared to many of his friends, but Thomas, and Thomas wants to do, I mean, he, you know, now in history, he's known as Doubting Thomas, but I think, I think a lot of us, if, if not all of us, can relate to Thomas in that we would be asking questions too. We want to see. And what's interesting about Jesus is he doesn't say, no, no, Thomas, I just want you to believe. The other guys believed. No, you know, I'm a bit offended, Thomas. No, Jesus says, hear my hands. Touch my side. And I think what helps us, particularly for those of us this morning who look at these ideas of history, truth, love, and wounds, there's a way in which this can all just be disconnected. It can still be amazing and true, and that's a good reminder, Nathan, but it doesn't, it's, I don't know if it's going to help me tomorrow when I get back into the grind of life. This is why I, we have, have to at least mention something of the resurrection, because, you know, again, coming back to Tim Keller, Tim Keller makes this point that actually death, known as the final enemy, Jesus, in defeating death, it's almost as though he blows a hole through the door of death and says to us, that thing that can't be beaten, the final enemy, oh no, it can be. It can be beaten. I've conquered that. Now, here's the thing. If you're anything like me, you, you might have a category where you locate the resurrection because, you know, we think of all, you just go through the Rolodex memory you have of all the miracles in the Gospels. I mean, you know, water into wine, blind Bartimaeus, woman at the well, just keep going down the list. And you have all these miracles, but for, for most of my life, I've seen them as, okay, you have miracles, Okay, those are all miracles. And then when you look at the resurrection, that's like miracle plus plus. It's like that's, that's next level miracle. But one of the differences about the resurrection of Jesus is not only that it's a miracle, but that it's, it's an invitational, it's a participatory miracle. It's something that you and I are invited into that's why Paul uses, and you see it certainly in Romans, language of um, if, we, if we died with him, we will also live with him. Jesus is inviting us into resurrection life. What is, so what does that mean for us today, for those of us who actually are in a very difficult place, where maybe the lights have turned out in our life? What is that? How does the resurrection speak? What it means is that we have, since we have the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, dwells in us, the spirit of Jesus lives in us, that resurrection power, it means that Jesus Christ, if you can, if you can get a hold of this image, it's as though the resurrection says Jesus Christ looks to us and he puts out his hands to us and says, take a hold of my hands, I'll bring you through. That's the story of the resurrection. It's not just a message, it is that. It's not less than that, but it's actually more than that. 
It's an invitation saying, take a hold of my hands and we'll make it through to the other way. We'll make it through to the other side. Because I can. Because I'm the one who actually knows the keys to get us through death. History, truth, love, wounds. Jesus knows the way. Before we move into a time of communion, let's pray. Father, thank you that when we think about you, we're thinking about reality. That's not this, we're not talking about these distant or nebulous or disconnected ideas, but things that pertain to our real life. And thank you that in Jesus, you have come to us. You are the God of history, of truth, of love, of wounds. I pray that you would meet with us where we are. Feed us, strengthen us, minister to us, Lord. In your name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all, and we are His.